Welcome into the Odson Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Preem, Eric Scopel on the show as always. And welcome to Wednesday's mailbag. You guys have submitted us some questions, some team football news, some recruiting stuff. I think even some basketball stuff. We've got a wide gamut of questions. We're going to break it all down that you guys submitted to the show. But first, I want to remind you guys right now we're offering a promotion right now. Two months for just $1 gets you in the door at duckterritory.com for a VIP membership. Join one of the largest online communities out there, free or not free, for Oregon fans. You got recruiting news year round. You've got team coverage year round. Uh, you've got a wide net of the network from across the 24 7 sports platform that you can access and read information on. So, highly encourage you guys to jump in on that. Okay, Eric, uh, it's Wednesday, like we said at the beginning of the show. We've got some questions. Let's get right to it. All right. First one from at Luis Bond. Can Oregon be that dominant team in the conference for years to come, like Alabama, Oklahoma, and Clemson? And what would it take? Oh, this is an interesting place to start here because I think we are starting to see now with two consecutive Pac-12 championships. And, of course, what Oregon did earlier on in the 2010s until about the midway point of that decade, see them kind of reestablishing themselves as that team. I mean, I I don't have all the numbers in front of me here, but Oregon undoubtedly has been the best team in the Pac-12 from 2010 till now. Obviously, they had some dips there. 2016 season is, is hard to forget, and 2017, 2018 were kind of up and down seasons, but... 2019-20, they certainly have reestablished themselves. They are not obviously at the point of being an Alabama or an Oklahoma or a Clemson, um, as Louis suggests, in terms of like – now, the, typically the last couple of years they have been the preseason Pac-12 favorites, or at least they were in 2020. 2019, they actually were the Pac-12 North favorites, but Utah – but like I think like literally one vote was the favorites overall for the conference – but, you know, you look at Alabama, Oklahoma, and Clemson, and every year they are the preeminent favorites, basically. You know, Alabama every now and then will have some competition with an LSU or a Georgia, Oklahoma with Texas maybe. Um, Clemson with Florida State a couple of years ago, but probably not anymore. But I, I look at Oregon, I think, like, I think they're close to that point. And, um, you know, there's been some kind of looks ahead, and this is maybe a way to kind of answer this. Um, because looking at 2021, and I think in part just because of the way they played in the Fiesta Bowl, you look at the early top 25s or the two early top 25s is the term that people use shortly after the, the season ends. And there are three teams kind of in that top 15, top 12 range. And it's USC, Oregon, and Washington in some order of that. And I think for Oregon to get to that next level, they would have to become the team that every season it's just boom, Oregon's going to be the highest rated in this slow and, and, right. and, you know, and that sort of thing. And so they're not there. I think the, 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 the question of, like, I guess the first part, can they get there? Absolutely, I think they can get there. I and mean, we've seen Oregon establish themselves in that regard, like I said, from about 2010 through about 2015. You know, in 15, obviously, they have Arn Adams injury. Kind of, that's kind of the start of the decline after Marcus Mariota's gone. But, like, there was a five- or six-year stretch there where Oregon was every year, like, oh, they're the team, they're the team. Yep. I think they can get back to that point, Matt. I think what it would take would be, like, maybe this is just short-term stuff, but – They've got to figure out the, the quarterback position a little bit more consistently. And 
this is a program that throughout the 2010s, those early years, like you kind of knew what you had at quarterback. And certainly when you had Marcus Mariota, you knew that, um, you know, years where you had Darren Thomas, you knew that obviously the turning of kind of the page here at the end of the 2010s with Justin Herbert, you knew that he was a four-year guy. I think what hurts Oregon big picture right now is they've got a lot of quarterback talent, but we, and we've talked about this a lot, but it's not clear like who the heir apparent is. Right. And I think that, that helps. And then the other thing is just continuing to recruit like this. Um, and I feel really good. And I think you look at the rankings, you feel really good about that, but at the same time, you have to continue to do that. And I think the key thing here is you have to continue to get immediate contributions from those players. And of course, you can't say Oregon hasn't had that. Kayvon Thibodeau, Pac-12 freshman, defensive player of the year in 2019. Noah Sewell, the same thing in 2020. But you'd certainly like to see the collective group kind of maybe step up a little bit more. And there are reasons in 2020 why that wasn't the case that were injury-related. I just did a story on, you know, five true freshmen in 2020 who should have bigger roles in 2021. And, like, basically all five of them were highly regarded guys who were dealing with injuries, whether it was Justin Flo or Dante Manning or – Trey Benson or Jackson LaDuke or Jason Jones. There's my whole list. Now you don't have to read the story, guys. <laughs> poorly, poorly done sales pitch on my part there, but of course I've got more information. But like the point remains, like some of it's health-related, but I think you'd like to see a little bit earlier returns on some of these guys. But the point remains, like to me, it's like, can you get the quarterback recruiting? Can you, can you get the quarterback? To, like, Can you get that elite guy consistently? Which you look at Alabama, Oklahoma, and Clemson, like those guys have had so many top draft picks, Heisman caliber quarterbacks, you know, over the last decade or so, and Oregon has had some of that, but like for them to continue to be that, they need that. And then I think it's just continuing to recruit at an elite level, which obviously Alabama, Oklahoma, and Clemson do as well. And I'd probably throw in Ohio State um, as just kind of an, uh, the, the fourth team. If you're looking at the, the other four major conferences, Alabama's the elite team in the SEC every year, Ohio State's the elite team in the Big Ten, Clemson in the ACC, and Oklahoma in the Big 12. It boils down to recruiting. Yeah, agreed. For me, like, as, as long as you recruit good players and you consistently have the more talented roster than everyone else in the conference, uh, you are going to position yourself where if you get good coaching, good skill development, you're going to dominate your conference. We've, we've seen it with Clemson. Um, we've seen it for the most part with Alabama. I mean, they haven't won their conference every year the last 10 years or so, but you can basically pencil them in to the to the SEC championship game almost every year, and it's kind of a shock that they don't get there. Um, they've they've had some challengers, you know, Georgia, uh, Auburn, Florida, uh, but for the most part, they have dominated, and it's because they have Clemson and Alabama have basically every year signed a top five recruiting class, most often a top two recruiting class. Ohio State is doing the same thing in the Big Ten. Oklahoma is still doing the same thing in the Big 12. And for three straight years now, Oregon has signed the number one ranked recruiting class in the Pac-12. That will matter. Yep. And we'll probably start factoring, really factoring in, I think, in 2021. Um, you go to 2018, the last year Oregon didn't sign the number one recruiting class in the, in the conference, and they were two. Uh, USC was number one. You go to 2017, Oregon was third that year, which is pretty remarkable considering that was uh, a, a year in flux 
for the program. And so I, I think in 2021, they will receive a good chunk of first round or not first round, but first place votes in the preseason media poll. USC probably will be the one um, to garner the, the most and be the preseason favorite, but I don't think it's going to be by a wide margin. Um, Oregon has kind of embarrassed them two years in a row now. Uh, Oregon clearly has, I think, a coaching advantage over USC, and the talent gap between those two teams is uh, quickly diminishing. Uh, Oregon is ascending, USC is descending, and really the only thing that I think really keeps me from from going into 2021 and saying Oregon isn't the, the go-away favorite is the quarterback spot, like you said. Like, if, if we get some some clarity there, and, and we probably won't until games start being played, but once that factor gets factored in for 2021, like, I think it becomes obvious they're, they're the team to beat. And then it's, then it's just, hey, like, as long as you have – championship caliber years where you are winning or competing for, for conference championships every single season. And by competing, I mean, like if you get to the conference championship game three out of the next four years and you win it two out of those three times. And the one time that maybe you don't make it, you, you find a way to win 11 games. Maybe you go 10 and two and, 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 Two not two conference losses is the reason why you you didn't make the conference championship game, but you, you you find a way to to get to eleven wins. That's what will keep you in that spot where it doesn't really matter who you lose, you are the best team in the conference going into the next year because you're recruiting well and every single year you're winning. And I think that's attainable. It's not going to be easy, but I think it's very attainable for for this Oregon program and the trajectory trajectory that they're going at. I, I mean, I kind of don't feel like they're that far away. And Matt brought up some of the great points there from, with the recruiting perspective. And then you look at what they've done in the field the last two years. I know 2020 was wonky and they win the conference championship. And there's, this is where the, one of the things that stinks. The whole offseason narrative is going to be that this was like a, not an earned conference championship. But regardless, like the history books are going to show Oregon won in 2020. Um, they won the Pac-12 championship. I guess I don't know what history books are going to have that details because everything's going to be like, I guess the Wikipedia books which is becoming our like new way of, uh, of, of uh, I guess, just like commemorating things. Um, but like, that's going to be the case. Like Oregon won this last year. And it's like, I think they're getting close. I don't think they're that far off, um, but there, there are certainly some steps that need to take to become that team every season. Like we said with some of these other teams in the country. And part of that is also just winning on the big stage. Um because you do see these other programs, whether it be in the college football playoff semifinals or winning national championships or in the other New Year's Six Bowl games or in marquee non-conference games, carry the mantle of their conference in those games and have a lot of success and win these big games and be impressive on the big stages. Oregon has shown an ability to do that a little bit under Mario Cristobal. Obviously, the game against Wisconsin stands out, but they also have kind of struggled against Auburn in a game they should have won. I think everybody would agree that was a game that's very winnable. And then, of course, the Fiesta Bowl. So, like, that's maybe another just kind of like it's not what they need to do to get there, but that's another touchstone of kind of like I think how you can recognize a team re- kind of reaching that level is also just winning some of these big games on the big stage, which 
been kind of hit or miss so far with, with Mario Cristobal. Next one from at Quack Attack 74. Any chance Mario Cristobal would interview Jeremy Pruitt for DC since he was let go by Tennessee? Or is it too big of a risk considering all the violations he was involved with? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. Thanks for using the hashtag. I just want to like throw this one right to Matt because we've had this conversation. I don't know if it was on air, but it was certainly off air. We've had this conversation about how uh, it, probably Jeremy Pruitt's not the guy you really want to just like kind of bring in right now, given everything that's happened with the volunteer football program. Boy, I mean, to see the stuff that's coming out of Tennessee, level one and level two violations is what uh, Bruce Feldman is being told by a source within the Tennessee Athletic Department. Um, that Those are the two highest levels of violations you can commit um, at the NCAA level. And do you want to hire someone – that's under investigation by the NCA right now. And what is it? It, it, it? It's it's Dan Patrick uh, went on the radio on Tuesday and said that he has a source at Tennessee that's telling him the school got in trouble in part because they have a reputation of giving out McDonald's bags full of cash. Oh, geez. And, <laughs> and, and that is – Fair or not, when you are the head coach of a football program, you are responsible for every action that everyone that works under you does. And so when you expand the staff and you build out, you know, the, the coaching staffs like this that we've seen, and you have so many people that opens the door for you to, to have less information and, and fewer knowledge of, of what's going on with everyone from day-to-day -day perspective, but the buck stops with you. You're responsible. You have to know what everyone's doing. And so whether he knew or not, it's on him. And I look at this and think Pruitt was a really good defensive coordinator at Alabama. Um, but all the smoke and all the heat that's on him right now, like I don't think it's worth bringing in. Um, maybe you wait, you know, maybe the second time, another time when a D, the D coordinator spot opens up again, uh, or if, if you haven't found a candidate yet, and in a couple of months the NCAA comes out and you know clears Pruitt's name and, and says, well, by definition he has to be fired, but he wasn't aware that this was going on and he's not at fault, whatever, whatever. Then maybe you can have that discussion. But right now it, it, he's too hot to touch. And honestly, I almost think anyone at Tennessee is too hot to touch. Like. Do you want your program to, to be associated with hiring someone that literally just got fired for cheating? No. Like we give second chances all the time, but like you don't just go immediately hire a guy who just got fired for cheating. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, I'm guarantee you that Jeremy Pruitt will be a high level assistant coach somewhere within the next three years. Agreed. You know, like he'll land on his feet eventually, but he's going to have to spend some time atoning for this and, and part of why I just want to kind of circle back to why there might have been some interest here is they, they were on the same staff at Alabama, Mario Cristobal and Jeremy Pruitt um, in, in Cristobal's final season uh, in 2016. They were both there. Mario, Mario was coaching offensive line. Uh, Pruitt was the defensive coordinator, linebackers coach. So, like, there, there is some at least shared history, at least a slight overlap of time spent together. Um, and like Matt said, a really, really accomplished defensive coordinator yep. um, at Alabama, at Florida State, at Georgia. 
um, at Tennessee up and down career there, but certainly a career that you can look at and say like they played pretty solid defense, you know, during his time there. Um, not a huge winning success. I mean, this year they went three and seven, um, kind of fell off a cliff after a, a decent start. But like, I, 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 yeah, I'm with you, Matt. You don't want to touch this kind of guy right now. And you, when you're in a program like Oregon that's ascending, there's no reason to bring anybody in who can drag you down. Right. Um, and so I look at him and say, if you were like, if you were a, a, like, like, I don't know, like, I mean, if you were at a school that would just never have a chance to have a coach this accomplished at your school and you were just like, Hey, it's worth taking, you know, rolling the dice, which is why like a smaller, probably not a smaller power five, but like a, like a, a group of five school might take a look at him in 2022 or something. Right. Like, like give him a year to kind of cool off, kind of like let the whole story come out, see if, if it's really tenable to bring him in. But like, if you're Oregon, you're too attractive that you can get somebody at least comparable to him that doesn't have all of this, baggage with you that again can possibly like hurt you like he, he could be more of a, a negative than a positive so I, I agree with Matt on this one and the good question from quack attack just because he, he right, kind of ties into the biggest story nationally from a college football perspective is is Jeremy Pruitt and what's going on at Tennessee and then ties into the fact that Oregon has a defensive coordinator opening and Mario Cristobal and Pruitt at least have some sort of history of being on the same staff for a year um, in Tuscaloosa third one from at C Zygon four. There was a trend for a while that the Pac-10 slash Pac-12 team with the most experienced quarterback had a pretty good chance of winning the Pac. Do you think this is still true, or has the sh- the trend shifted to something else? Hashtag odds and audibles. Um, I don't know if that's just a Pac-10 Pac-12 trend. I think that's a trend at all levels. Quarterback play is yeah is the most important thing. I mean, you see it in the NFL. Go look at the four teams that are playing that are still playing and they have players that have either been MVPs in the past or are, I think you look at Josh Allen and think he could be sometime soon. I mean, the other guys have all been MVP champions, Super Bowl champion quarterbacks. Um, like it, it's really important. Quarterback play is extremely important. So um, I think certainly like the most, I, I, I said earlier in terms of like what I think it takes for Oregon to become that dominant team in the PAC 12 is really quarterback play. Like, and you saw the difference between a Justin Herbert team in 2019 and then one that had much lesser quarterback play in 2020. Um, and you saw the way that none of the games were as easy as they should have been. They, they lost games they shouldn't have lost. They were embarrassed by teams that shouldn't be embarrassing them. I think, I mean, I think you just take a step back. And if you said, hey, Oregon's going to lose to Oregon State, California, and Iowa State this season, and the Iowa State game's not even going to be close, I think Oregon fans would be like, "That's there's no way that's the case. Like, or, there's, That should not be the status of the program. So I think that's the case. Now, I think the other part here, the most experienced element is, is maybe the focal point on this question, because I think we both agree, Matt, just like quarterback play is really important. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it's pretty hard to like... You're not going to win a national championship if you don't have uh, an elite quarterback. Like, in college football, like... We've seen in the NFL, like Trent Dilfer go on to win an NFL uh, Super Bowl. Like, but how rare is that? Like, even well, that, in the NFL, that was like twenty years ago. Yeah, in the NFL, where like you don't have one of the top ten quarterbacks in the NFL to win a Super Bowl. I, I truly believe if 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 you want to win a national championship in today's landscape of college football, you have to have a future NFL player at that position. Does he have to be a junior or a senior, though? I think no, right? No. Like, and I think I think that's what shifted for me too. In that, 
And it's obviously there are outliers. If you go back and look 10, 15 years ago, and you can find some really good freshmen and sophomore quarterbacks, but you just look, I just think you look at some of the guys that have come in and, and led teams to national championships. Um, you know, a Trevor Lawrence at Clemson was what was that his freshman or a sophomore year? I, I can't remember. Um, Tua Tagalevoa was came in and I know he didn't lead the team the whole season, but came in as I think a redshirt freshman um, and kind of spot duty because some, some injuries and stuff and won a championship. Like, um, you know, even, even a card, Cardell Jones against Oregon from Ohio state wasn't like a junior, like or a senior quarterback. Like he was somebody who didn't have a ton of, and even if he was that age wise, cause I think he might've been a junior, he wasn't, or maybe it was a red shirt sophomore. I'd have to go back and look. Um, but like, he didn't have a ton of like in-game experience, but like the talent was so clear. So yeah, I, I think you're seeing now more and more like these players enter college and just be more ready. And I think you see that across the board. Like, you think about what Oregon's had from two freshmen in the last couple of years, with whether it's Penny Sewell or Noah Sewell or Kayvon Thibodeau, guys who just jump in and are immediately really good. But like, I think you see that quarterback as well. And I don't know if we'll see that with Ty Thompson right away. And I think that's kind of maybe a segue here of, of talking about that because we had another question afterwards that discusses Ty. But I think you can be the cream, you know, the the top team in the Pac-12 without having to have a four-year starter at quarterback. Mm -hmm. I think Uh, you could be the, I think you could be the top team in the PAC 12 with a quarterback that has no experience starting before, like whether that's a true freshman or, or, or sophomore. I mean, shoot, they were, they were predicted to win the league this year with Tyler Shuck. He'd never had a start in his name. So we're already seeing it. Yeah. And Keaton Slovis, his freshman year, he wasn't supposed to be the starter and, he almost leads them to a Pac-12 South championship, right? So, like, it's certainly not implausible. And I think that's actually – I think with us just transition and we'll do some more Ty Thompson talk here to the fourth question because it is regarding Ty. I think that's what this point, this question kind of lends itself to is, like, does Oregon need to have a really experienced quarterback to win a conference championship? I don't think that's the case. What they do need is to have one of the conference's two or three best quarterbacks. And mm-hmm. can that be Ty Thompson? So here, the next question is – from at Mike Kavanaugh seven, when does Ty Thompson get on campus? He's here. And the answer is that's in the past tense. He's already here. Um, but let, let's, let, I think let's just devote a little more time talking about Ty because I do think this is like, <laughs> this is kind of the crazy thing here. Aside from Kayvon Thibodeau, like is there a name that more Oregon fans are talking about right now no. than Ty Thompson? And it may, he might even have surpassed Kayvon Thibodeau right now. Yeah. Um, this is who everybody is excited to talk about and to see what they can provide. Um, and the fact that he gets here in January and gives himself a couple of months before they start spring and then the entirety of spring, it's pretty clear he's coming up here with the expectation of like, I want to at least challenge to be the starter. And we both kind of said on our, on our podcast the other day about the quarterback position, how hard that would be to do the lack of kind of, experience from an Oregon perspective with a true freshman being the, you know, season opening starter. But this is a really special talent, Matt. And I think I look at him and, and like, I, I let's, let's look at like the best case from a Ty Thompson scenario. Like I could see a scenario that's, that's not, I don't think it's crazy far fetched where he starts the last five to seven games of the season. Oregon has a lot of success. And I say that in part because he's not built like Jay Butterfield, right? Jay Butterfield comes in and he's like 6'6", 195, lanky, tall, lean, 
guy with great upside, great arm talent. But like Ty Thompson's like 6'4", 220, 225, like put together, has a huge arm. Um, my concern with him would be less of like the physical attributes and more of like how quick is he able to pick up an offense? Um, it, it, how, how good of a fit is he for the offense that's already in place at Oregon? Does Joe Moorhead have to shuffle some stuff around a little bit to fit him into what they're doing? And then the, the big one for freshman quarterbacks, and we obviously saw this with Tyler Shuck in 2020 for young quarterbacks, is how, do you, how, how well do you read a, de- you know, a defense? And in an offense like Joe Moorhead's, how do you make those snap decisions, whether it be to hand the ball to the running back to keep it and run or to throw it? Um, and so, like, it's that progression of, like, okay, I think he's got the physical tools, but is he able to do all of the kind of – I won't say smaller things because they're all really important, but some of the stuff between the, between the ears that are so important for the position. And I don't have a clear answer to that, but if it turns out he can, like, I don't think there's much argument that he has – the best physical tools right now. That's not to say he's the most physically gifted at this present moment, but from an upside perspective, like this guy can be really, really special. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you that I think he, it, it will help him tremendously that he's here already and he will get to go through a full off season. while it's somewhat different than a normal off season, but still, I think this coming off season, Oregon has a better idea of how to implement training, how to do the stuff with COVID-19 than they did last year. It was fly by the seat of your pants and trial and error. And everyone was away from, from home. And, you know, they can technically now have guys on campus. I mean, they, they just, they disbanded and went about all their ways um, after the Fiesta Bowl for a couple of weeks, but, you know, Oregon could call them back and say, Hey, we're starting our off season program. We're working out in our facilities, which they could not do last offseason. Um, so it will help Thompson to be able to go through that. It will also help him to have a spring football. It sounds like we will get spring football in some capacity. Um, that will help. And then, you know, you hope by June, July, August, um, COVID has, has gotten into a better situation uh, and our handling of that has improved and we can get back to what's more of a normal off season. And if all that stuff happens and it's big if, but if it happens, like he's in a position, yes, where he can come in and he can really, really push for that starting spot for Oregon uh, right away as a true freshman, it, it's going to be difficult, but I, I, he's got the tools and the size and the playmaking ability to be an instant impact guy right away. I mean, he's projected as a as a day three draft pick already. Um, he's someone that's got prototypical size. I think he's probably more athletic, more of a runner than we anticipated, but he is purely a pro passing quarterback. Uh, this is going to be a guy that's going to challenge for the job. And it wouldn't surprise me if at some point he's the full-time starter for Oregon, I I do think Tyler Shuck is the guy to start the year, but I don't feel as confident as I did this time last season that Shuck would be able to, to start game one and start game 12 and all of them in between. And I think for like, let's just say one thing to wrap this conversation up before we move on to the last couple questions here. I think you can use what happened with Tyler Shuck as as uh, as just a, a way to remind you that like 
all of the optimism and positivity heading into a season or an offseason about a player. Like Tyler Shuck had a very high approval rating around this time a year ago, yeah. right? Like everybody was kind of like, okay, Justin Herbert's gone, but they've got this really excited. And the two of us included, we were really excited about everything we'd heard from Tyler Shuck, everything we'd seen in practice from Tyler Shuck. He looked good in the 2019 or the, yeah, the 2019 spring game. We didn't have one in 2020. So yeah, he looked good in that. There's a lot of optimism around him. Again, the backup quarterback usually has a really high approval rating unless he's come out and proven he's not very good. Like, unless it's a Braxton Burmeister or a Jeff Lockie situation where they've gone out and you're like, okay, they're not going to be able to win us football games. And they're like, they, they're kind of not very impressive. Like, everybody's pretty excited about these backup quarterbacks. And so I think it's like almost a kind of a cautionary tale here of like, look at what Tyler Shuck has been through here. Where this, you know, in January of 2020, we were all like, boy, it's going to be Tyler Shuck's job. He's going to be great. It's going to be so much fun to see this new, young, exciting quarterback develop. Fast forward a year, everyone's like, Tyler Shuck's old news. He's, he's not good. We don't want him to be the quarterback. Some people are like, we don't have one of them to be even on the team anymore. Like, everybody thinks Ty Thompson is going to be the next guy. We both think he's really talented, but we don't know how this stuff plays out. Sometimes it's unpredictable. And I just think just to be kind of cautious a little bit with kind of your thinking about how maybe Ty Thompson is a future superstar from day one when a lot of people thought really highly of Tyler Shuck when he was here. And gosh, there were times I remember when Justin Herbert wasn't playing too hot. As a senior. Where people were like, gosh, can we see Tyler Shuck a little bit? And look what happened. So, I mean, fans, this is what happens when you're really attached to a program and excited about it. Um, But just be, I think just be like, just kind of try to learn from what's happened the last couple of years at the quarterback position of, you know, sometimes it's unpredictable. And sometimes the guy that everybody builds up to be really, really good doesn't, isn't that way right away. And that doesn't mean that they stink or aren't good at all. But like, just, I don't know. I just, I just be cautiously just like move a little bit. Don't, don't go too quickly here with the Ty Thompson's going to be Marcus Mariota narrative. Like he's going to be an amazing quarterback right away just because he's a big time recruit. That doesn't always translate. So um, I don't know. That's just me kind of trying to find a way to just, because I think the fan base, you can see it is like, it's Ty Thompson time. It's Ty Thompson time. And like, I, it would be awesome if that was the case. And if he comes in and, and just is a superstar right away, like that's huge for the program. And like Matt and I would be really excited by that too. But I think you also have to just kind of be realistic about how this stuff happens. And again, a year ago now, everybody was on the Tyler Shuck bandwagon and, and thought he was going to be great. Um, and pretty much no one's on it anymore. All right. Last couple here. Fifth from at duck greatness. Who are some targets to keep an eye on for the 2022 recruiting class? I believe he's speaking about football. So, Matt, I will toss this your way. Uh, give us kind of the Reader's Digest list of, of some guys to know. Oregon um, has a couple of verbal commitments, and, and I guess there's also a recruit who's got a, a, uh, an announcement date coming up here in the next week or so that the Ducks are looking pretty good for, too. Yeah, it feels like we've done this a couple times, um, but I think it's still always worth repeating a little bit. Um, Andre Dollar is a four-star tight end out of Mustang, Oklahoma. He is committed to Oregon. He is the third, 303rd best player in the country, the 14th best tight end in the country. Uh, Amarion Winston, he has a familiar last name. And yes, he is the third Winston brother um, to come out of Central Catholic High School in Portland, Oregon. He is Lamar Winston's youngest brother, uh, former Oregon Duck linebacker. He is also committed to the Ducks. 327th best player in the country, the 27th best 
linebacker in the country. So Oregon already has two verbal commitments right now in that 2022 recruiting class. Eric mentioned a guy that's coming up to uh, make a verbal commitment on January 27th is Grayson Halton, a six foot four, 250 pound defensive end out of Southern California in San Diego, State Augustine High School, 198th best player uh, in the country. He is the 12th best weak side defensive end. And if you want to get an idea of just, okay, 12th best, where does that fit? Maybe uh, a little bit deeper into things. He is the second highest rated defensive end prospect on the West coast. There are only three weak side defensive end prospects in the top 15 that are out West. So if, if you're sitting here and, and thinking, okay, well, 12, that's pretty good. Where are we really at? Well, this is one of the most important players out West in this recruiting cycle. Um, if, if you want to just look along the, just the defensive line, every single position uh, for the defensive line out West, there's not a lot of them that are in the top 20. Um, there's only one it's uh, Cyrus Moss out of Nevada. And then you go through the, the 30 and you find uh, a couple more guys 40 Halton's included there, 35. So he's one of the best defensive linemen in the country. He's leaning towards Oregon. It's probably safe to say uh, if he does commit to Oregon, he will be the next one. Uh, there's no other players right now that I'm monitoring that you would look at and say like, hey, like a commitment could be coming very soon from him. Um, so I, I think you add Halton to this mix of, of three. Oregon probably jumps into – the top 15 in the country in recruiting rankings in the 2022 class. Uh, they are currently 22nd overall there. Now, other positions across the 2022 class, um, I think you you look naturally at quarterbacks, uh, Malik Murphy, um, A.J. Duffy, two high-profile recruits that are very high on Oregon pro-style quarterbacks. Murphy is a five-star 30th best player in the country. Duffy is the fifth best pro style quarterback in the country. He's just outside the top 100 at 103. Um, at, at running back, there's a lot of options here. Um, you know, Gavin Shawshuck is a five star. He's been on campus at Oregon, probably not trending towards Oregon like he was earlier on, but he's still very interested. Relic Brown, uh, he has Oregon in his his group. He's a five star running back. Um, you look at Jaden Ott, a former verbal commitment for Oregon in that class. He's at Bishop Gorman in Nevada, 205th best player in the country. Uh, Dalton Hayden from Tennessee, another guy that's a running back that's, that's high on Oregon. Um, so they've got a lot of options at that receiver spot. There's a ton of names at the receiver, uh, at running back, excuse me, at receiver. There's also a ton of names. Um, I, I, I think Tobias Merriweather from Union High, uh, Union Washington, uh, Union High School, excuse me, Camas, Washington. That's just outside of the Portland area. Uh, Darius Clemens, another guy that's near Oregon. He's from Portland, Westview High School, both four-star guys. Uh, I, I would really look at both of them as capable players to potentially uh, end up at Oregon. So you, you've got a lot of options at the receiver spot. I mean, there's probably like 15 guys right now, at <clears throat> excuse me, at receiver that are very, very high on Oregon. Um, Ryan Otten's a tight end from Olympia, Washington. 
uh, four-star guy, uh, you know, that's looking at Oregon, you know, wouldn't surprise me if Oregon signs two tight ends uh, for a second straight year. Um, offensive tackle on offensive line in general, uh, Josh Connerly Jr. from from Seattle, Washington, Rainier Beach. He's one of the top guys at the position. He's very high on Oregon. Uh, there's a lot from Was- the state of Washington that are along the offensive line. Malik Agbo, another four-star guy. Uh, he's from the, the Seattle area. He's looking at Oregon. Dave Uli uh, from Puyallup, a uh, four-star guy. Uh, George Mali, um, South Jordan, Utah, Bingham High School, four-star offensive guard. Uh, he's got interest in Oregon. Ernest Green from St. John Bosco, four-star guy. He's got interest in Oregon as well. Um, defensively, I, I mentioned Cyrus Moss. He is someone Oregon's recruiting. Um, Kenyatta Jackson from Florida. He is someone that, you know, it's going to be tough to pull, but he's saying all the right things right now for, for Oregon. Um, other players along the defensive line, you look across and um, there's not very many out there that, that are super serious about the Ducks, but Zach Swanson um, from Arizona, another player uh, to keep track of there. Uh, and then you start just looking across the board, secondary players, um, you see like a, a Damani Jackson's the top, you know, top corner in the country from matter day. Oregon's trying, but you know, they're kind of behind the eight ball there a little bit. Um, Dylan Everett uh, from IMG Academy in Florida, four-star cornerback. He's, he's got high interest in Oregon. Um, you, you can go down and uh, Jaden Mickey from Centennial high school in Corona, California, four-star guy. Uh, he's showing really good interest in Oregon and, um, Zeke Barry from De La Salle, three-star cornerback. He's got some higher interest in the Ducks as well. So, you know, there, there's there's a lot of names out there. I think this 22 class is going to be really interesting to see how it plays out because Oregon was able to get a lot of these guys on campus um, to check out the program. But also at the same time, a lot of the guys that they're recruiting, they've never been to Oregon. And – They've never seen the program and Oregon hasn't been able to evaluate in over almost a year now, almost. Um, so seeing how Oregon in person, I should say. Right. So seeing how this class shapes up uh, is really going to be unique. And it's going to be curious to see you know, how many guys can they take because of, you know, the NCAA saying that, you know, anyone that that's a senior the previous year can come back. How does that impact scholarships? Uh, it's the whole cycle itself is going to be flipped upside down. I think I was just going to say like this, this is the one of the more, this has to be the most bizarre circumstances for a recruiting class, probably surpassing 2021 when nobody got to take official visits really. Yep. But like, I mean, you're right. And like, I think good names that you ran through, it sounds like there's a good chance Oregon adds a third here soon, but there are some real difficulties for a program, especially like Oregon that, is not in a major hotbed of talent where everybody can just kind of head on over. And again, these visits are, are limited right now um, to really have some success. I mean, Oregon relies so much on Southern California and then other parts of the country for its recruiting success. And the 2021 class, at least you had a, a lot of those guys had, had been on campus at some point, whether it be the games in the fall or, or fortunately Oregon had that big spring a junior day event, like, like a day or two before, things were closed down and shut off because of COVID. And I just kind of think 2022, it could be, it could be kind of strange trying to figure out how to do this. And the good thing is, is they do now have the entirety of 2021 to 
experiment and kind of figure out the best ways to recruit virtually. And the other good news, obviously, is that it's not like they're on an even playing field as, you know, as much as you can be right now. It's not, it's not like certain schools around the country have different rules of abiding by, but really strange. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this 2022 class comes together. What's the pacing of it? Do, do, is there a difficulty kind of with the early momentum because of some of these limitations for, you know, in-person interactions? I mean, Oregon really hasn't been able to interact with these people, these recruits in 2022 in person in a very long time and almost a full calendar year. So some kind of crazy things, some unprecedented things. And then you throw in what Matt said there at the end, which is also true of kind of managing the scholarship numbers. Um, it's going to be, I mean, this is where we're, and this is where you have a lot of confidence in someone like Mario Cristobal, because he is such an elite recruiter. He's one of the best in the country from a head coaching perspective in doing this and, and managing talent acquisition, as he says, but certainly some major obstacles in 2022, unlike even 2021 to, to deal with. And it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. All right. Last one. And it's a hoops question, so I'm going to throw this right back to Matt. So, Matt, drink that water. Get ready. Uh, at Drew Goley asks, is there a guarantee from the conference that all Pac-12 men's basketball games will be played this year? Hashtag Ots and Audibles. This is a timely question as the men's program had their games this past weekend um, postponed against Arizona. Arizona State obviously had a game with UCLA also postponed. That was supposed to be played actually today. Um, but the program has just recently resumed activities, Matt. <laughs> Is the expectation that the Arizona-Arizona State game, and I guess the UCLA game has now been tacked on to um, the LA road trip next month, but like, is like, is this going to, are they, all of these games going to get played or is it a possibility here where somebody, one team plays 18 or 19 games rather than what the, you know, rather than I think it's 20 that the conference is playing overall? Well, is there a guarantee? I mean, they're going to try, but it's going to, it's getting, more and more difficult as the year goes on because of more and more cancellations across the conference. Um, I did see Arizona. They were wiping out their rivalry game against uh, Arizona state to end the year. They had like one game that's that week scheduled and they were moving it to Monday, I believe of next week so that they can basically guarantee they have a full week March, like, I think it's uh, February 20 or March 1st to February to March 6th, excuse me, March 1st, which would be a sun, which would be a Sunday to March 6th. Um, I believe that's right. Uh, Regardless, but basically Arizona is preparing to have a full week open for any makeup games that are needed. And I mean, they could play two or three game, you know, conference games that that week against teams. I mean, Oregon hasn't played them yet. They have to make up a game against Arizona. So we could see um, the league do that for Oregon State as well, where the Ducks and the Beavers they are scheduled to play on Saturday this week, January twenty third. Um, they can't play, or they 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 could theoretically play on like the twenty fifth, January twenty fifth, up in Corvallis. And now all of a sudden um, you've given yourself an open weekend to make up these games. And I think that's going to have to be what's required for every school if they want to guarantee that all these conference games get played. But I, I think if you had to really press me and, and think, okay, make a call, I'm going to expect we're going to have an uneven balanced, uh, uneven schedule where some teams will play 20 non-conference games and, 
some teams will, will play 19 and some teams will play 18 and we could possibly, you know, see some of the, where they play, you know, 18, 17 or 16 games. It all just kind of depends, you know, if the, if the league can, can get unscathed or, you know, how minimal they can minimize these uh, cancellations. It's going to be tough. I mean, I, I just I mean, I just don't see every school being able to play every single game. The odds are against that. Same thing on the women's side, too, just to kind of wrap up this discussion. Oregon obviously has a game against Arizona State that they're going to have to play later at a later date. I, I, all indications are that that game will be played at some point, whether that be in Tempe as it was originally planned or if they do something similar where they just play Arizona State twice on that return trip um, the weekend of February 8th. Um, that's a couple weeks from now. And the Arizona State game that weekend is is set for a Monday. Maybe they instead go Saturday, Monday, or something like that. I don't know. Or find a way to space it out or have it even – maybe they play Sunday, Tuesday and just have the Arizona State – you know, the Arizona school stay up here a little longer. But um, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. And I, I'm with Matt of, like, I don't think there is any guarantee that all of these games get played. And um, that stinks. It's – again, this is an unprecedented year. And – I think the only thing that you hope is that it doesn't inherently it doesn't impact the conference championship directly. Like it's it would be really unfortunate if a team, you know, wins the conference and plays three fewer games and right. that and maybe they miss playing some of the other key teams during that stretch. Like you hope that doesn't happen. But again, ultimately I, I'm just like I'm just thrilled that they're getting through the season and again, knock on all the wood you have, like that it gets, to, you know, that they get, they get most of it played and that we have some sort of, you know, hierarchy at the end of like, this was the best team and that you can go into some sort of postseason because it was so demoralizing last year where both the men's and the women's programs were right there on the verge of doing something special in, in the NCAA tournament and, and neither got an opportunity. Obviously, I think the women would have won the national championship. And I think the way Peyton Pritchard was playing and, and yep. certain, the way he's played now. Final four was certainly in the cards for them. I was going to say, it felt like they could really play, make a deep, deep run, too. And, gosh, wouldn't have been really cool to have both teams playing really deep in the tournament the same year. And, and unfortunately, I don't necessarily know if that'll be the case this year. Um, but at least they have an opportunity to, to kind of play as far as they can and, and earn their way rather than a year like last year where that wasn't even an opportunity. It's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audibles podcast. Thank you for listening to the show. We will be back later this week on Friday for another podcast. And hey, until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. So, see you later, folks.